0: making in the Asia-Pacific region is experiencing a boom in 2021. In the first quarter alone, M&A activity in the Asia-Pacific region excluding Japan was up 55%, the highest level since 2015. However, Refinitiv stated that the boom hinges on how well governments can contain the COVID-19 pandemic, which itself is experiencing a rebound as variants proliferate across parts of Asia. In this podcast for Future CFO, we speak to Ms. Aris Wong, Managing Director for BMS Group Asia, on the role of M&A insurance in protecting both sides of the deal. Aris, welcome to Podchats for Future CFO.
1: Hi, Ellen. Thanks for having me here.
0: What exactly is MNA insurance and is this a new trend in Asia?
1: Well, M&A insurance traditionally insures against underlying unknown risks associated with the target company, often crystallizing only post-closing after the buyer has taken over the company. This is actually not a new trend in Asia. It is widely used in other parts of the world and it has slowly been picking up in Asia as well. So for instance, a lot of the private equities such as TPG, Bering, Southern Capital, they are actually very familiar with the usage of M&A insurance because they are regular M&A deal team uh, sort of deal makers right but when you talk about the strategic buyers, so for instance if you have the likes of let's say Zara acquiring H&M right they're acquiring for strategic reasons and such deals would often be on an ad hoc basis that's when it's harder to I would say penetrate these strategic and corporate deal makers because they do not divest or acquire on a regular basis
0: So, how exactly does M&A insurance work? Mm -hmm. For that matter, who should buy M&A insurance? And again, uh, is this something that, especially the local companies, either buying or selling, are they familiar with it?
1: Sure. So maybe I'll take uh, your questions one at a time. So the first one is, how does it work? So M&A insurance actually it insures against the financial losses incurred by the buyer as a result of the reps being given by the seller to be inaccurate, right? So in this case, I think if we could take a step back, uh, we would all be very familiar with the concept of caveat emptor, which is buyer beware, right? So in this case, why can't we have the same scenario where the buyer does its due diligence and then acquires the company uh, as is based on the diligence result? The reason is that it's flawed here uh, for two reasons. One is there's information asymmetry, right? If you think about it, there's only so much information that the buyer can uncover during a short span of a few weeks of diligence. So they are actually sort of taking on a company with a lot of sort of contracts, employees, uh, unknown liabilities. And the second factor is that these unknown liabilities could have a black swan event like kind of impact, which means that it's low probability but high severity. So in the event that one of these unknown liabilities crystallize, it's a low chance of striking, but when it does, it has the ability to cripple the target company and buyer, right? So in this case, you want the sellers to warrant or stand behind such historical state of affairs. And in the event that these uh, state of affairs are inaccurate. Now, instead of looking to the seller, because post-completion, for instance, if the seller is a fund, the seller could be actually like there's a group of them and they are financially insolvent. Who do you look to for this guarantee or warranty, right? So that's how MA insurance works. You look to the insurer instead of the seller. So it provides the buyer with a peace of mind in completing the transaction. So the parties who typically take up the m insurance if you think about it is the buyer the buyer is actually the insured because that means that when there is a breach of these reps given by the seller the buyer goes directly to the insurer and make a claim they do not even have to notify the seller if you think about it this product actually benefits the seller as well by giving them and facilitating a clean exit so often both parties should have a think about uh, whether they would like to use MA insurance in their deals right so when they have a think about it, and then they could structure the transaction with this insurance in mind. Eventually, the buyer should be the one picking it up, but we have seen situations where the seller ends up being the one who is insured as well. But that means that the buyer has to first bring a claim against the seller before the seller brings a claim against the insurer.
0: We've seen a surge in M&A deals in the first half of 2021. Given the prevailing conditions that we have COVID with us, is having an insurance to cover M&A deals a sufficient amount of risk management strategy for both sides of the table?
1: Well, I would say that it's quite a critical piece, but it's definitely uh, not sufficient on its own because it's only one of the many risk mitigation tools available to the deal makers. And from a risk management perspective, it's quite multifaceted, right? And if you think about it, every time when you're acquiring a company, uh, risk could pop up anywhere in the most unexpected areas. It's akin to, for instance, like playing mole, right? The areas where you are conscious that there could be risk arising, that's when you hedge against. And that's why risk often sort of pops up or it materializes in areas where you've actually not sort of foreseen that uh, happening.
0: Can you cite an example of an M&A deal that would have benefited from having insurance for either party?
1: Uh, so if we take a look at the m as of insurance context, right, uh, a lot of these deals are actually quite confidential. And because of that, uh, it wouldn't be possible for us to speak on a named basis. But if we look at, for instance, public records, and that's where we could see the claims being made. So uh, the example that I would like to cite is uh, Japanese brewery uh, site where they've actually acquired uh, independent Lakers, This is in the Pacific region for approximately one point two billion. And uh, post acquisition, they actually discovered that uh, there's some misrepresentation in relation to the financial statements reps being given. Right. So in that case, they actually brought forward a claim and they managed to claim approximately about two hundred million uh, for that transaction, which is about one sixth of the purchase price. Right. So this insurance is meant to hedge against. I would say back to the point of these Black Swan events, which means that it could potentially cripple the actual sort of uh, a target or the buyer itself when these risks uh, materialize.
0: Looking at it from the perspective of the Chief Finance Officer, at what point should the CFO consider buying m and insurance?
1: So these discussions should actually take place in tandem with the structuring of the transaction, right? So on the sell side, for instance, when the seller engages their financial advisor and they are discussing about the structuring of the deal, whereas on the buy side, for instance, you have your expression of interest when you're about to commence due diligence, that's when uh, the CFO should consciously think about whether they would like to use m insurance, right? We have been roped in at the very last minute when parties are sort of in deadlock uh, negotiating the reps just a few days before signing, uh, but that wouldn't be ideal. What's important is to have this, I would say, information exchange session with uh, the insurance broker, so parties like BMS, to have a think about whether insurance could be used and basically what's the pros and cons, right? Because ultimately, insurance is all about weighing the cost-benefit analysis, which means if you pay this amount of premium and you get to hedge against this risk, uh, is it worth that amount or should you just self-insure? So this is what we try to assist the clients on. So if I could just give you an example, because sometimes um, it's easier to put this in numbers. Right, when we look at a transaction of a hundred million, right, often parties wouldn't insure up to the full amount because that's assuming that something could happen which wipes out the entire value of the company. So in a hundred million deal, parties typically let's say insure twenty million, and the premium rates vary. But if we use a one percent rate of premium, which means out of twenty million, you are paying a premium of about two hundred thousand, and this payment is one time for a multi-year policy up to seven years. Which means that if you amortize it, you are looking at about thirty k in premium a year for what is essentially uh, hedging against a loss of up to one fifth of the value of a hundred million company, right? So these are the kind of factors that we would share with the CFO as well as the duty makers to let them understand what it's meant to cover and what are the cost involved.
0: Then you suggest key points for consideration by the CFO, including how to calculate the size of the insurance cover, which you partly alluded to already in the example before this.
1: So if I were in the position of the CFO and uh, looking to, for instance, make these uh, strategic acquisitions, right? So to me, it's all about sort of numbers as well. So for instance, in the deal itself, are there any holdbacks or escrows that are required? Because these are all inefficient use of capital when money is being locked away, right? So if you have a deal requiring escrow, it means that you may be paying 80% of the purchase price upfront to the seller and 20% is locked away for a good two or three years before it's being released on the basis that there's no breaches of reps. So that's one of the, I would say, the key considerations because instead of having these bags or escrows, we would propose, hey, why don't we use insurance instead? Because if your concern is whether the seller would actually respond to the claim and hence locking up part of the purchase price, let's use insurance where you would know that the insurers would definitely, they would be of reputable standing. You've got the likes of AIG, Liberty, Tokyo Marine, and you could look to them uh, in the event of a claim. And in terms of I would say calculating the size of insurance cover you could also uh, have a think about what is potentially the worst case scenario uh, either as a result of one extremely sort of egregious breach hitting or a few of these breaches hitting the asset that you've acquired and maybe if I could also sort of take a step back because Alan I noticed that we've actually delved right straight into the, the technicals and the details of MA insurance but often parties have a misconception as to what m insurance is supposed to cover, right? They would often ask like, hey, uh, am I able to insure against the performance of these assets or companies? That's actually not how MA insurance function. So if I could use an analogy of, um, let's say in sports, right? You have a club, let's say uh, signing up a star player. So what you want to do is, of course, you want to ensure that there's the diligence being done. They've gone through a medical, right? Just to ensure there's no underlying sort of health conditions. And then thereafter, when you've signed the player, you would get medical Insurance in case there are certain underlying medical conditions that's not being picked up, right? So that is akin to what MA insurance is meant to insure in terms of that star player being the asset that you're acquiring. Then the question is: what if this star player doesn't perform, right? Let's say in the past they could easily score 10 or 20 goals, and right now, after signing them, they not score any goals. There would be no insurance to insure against these type of uh, future performance or to guarantee such future performance. But what it does is that it provides you with a safety net. To ensure that the asset you are acquiring has strong fundamentals as backed up by the diligence, right? So that's why the the insurance is meant to ensure against these historical state of affairs such that you as the acquirer, you are well positioned to drive future growth with the asset that you've acquired. The other area to mention is that uh, it is quite vital to have market standard diligence being conducted because that's something that the insurers look to as well. Ultimately, they are stepping into the seller's shoes. They are responding to claims you know made by the buyer in relation to the reps that the sellers are giving. Because of that, they would like to ensure that the buyer has done a good job diligencing the, the company and flushing out potential known issues so that they can take that into account in valuing the target company.
0: Finally, given the prevailing appetite for M&A in the region, can you name three recommendations for CFOs and the leadership when it comes to managing their risks, particularly under the continuing cloud of the pandemic and increasing regulatory oversight?
1: I would always say, you know, I think go back to the basics, which means when you've identified a target, always uh, scrutinize the fundamentals and financial performance, uh, especially during the diligence stage. Uh, I mean, I've attended an investigative sort of DD conference recently where they've actually emphasized, they say, look, if the target has outstanding financial performance, especially as compared to its peers, always scrutinize that because sometimes it may just be sort of too good to be true. And then the second is ensuring that the valuation and the financial modeling uh, takes into account of a potential worst-case scenario, especially in the midst of the pandemic. And last but not least, right, so you identify what you know and what you do not know, you hedge against these unknown liabilities because through the use of MA insurance. Approach each transaction in a very methodological manner, right? You find out what you can about the asset. If you decide to proceed, you price in the known liabilities and you hedge against the unknowns. One
0: last thing I wanted to ask with you. There will always be a need for third party uh, organizations to help support an organization going through an M&A. What are the qualities that the CFO or the mm-hmm. leadership needs to look for when they're looking for those third party experts to help them walk them through this uh, M&A deal?
1: I would say that uh, their experience would be very vital. You want to be working with parties who have similar experience and they are able to bring that to the table. Um, it's also important to identify uh, which are the individuals who are working with you, because ultimately, these individuals are the ones who bring the experience along, right? So often you could say that, hey, let's uh, look at uh, a big brand name in terms of advisors, but you should drill into details. And that's why I would say in the MA, uh, what I call service provider space, it's still very much driven by personal relationships as well, because you, while you need to have the technical expertise, the deal makers also need to know that they can trust you to, uh, of course, you know, take a very commercial approach or, you know, have ensure that you do the right thing in working together with them to achieve the outcome, right? And often this also ensures, entails ensuring that there's an alignment of interest in uh, reaching that outcome.
0: Aris, thank you for joining us on Podchats for future CFO.
1: Great. Thanks, Alan. It's a pleasure.
0: That was Ms. Aris Wong, Managing Director for BMS Group Asia, speaking to us on the topic of under the cover of insurance. You are listening into to Podchats for Future CFO. As always, if you have a topic you'd like us to cover on this channel, simply email us at editors at society.com. We'd also like to invite you to sign up for a free weekly newsletter, so you won't miss an episode of Podchats for Future CFO. In the meantime, stay safe, have a great day, and see you on the next episode of Podchats for Future CFO. Bye for now.